Hello, and welcome to episode number 132 of the DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me today is Dr. William M. Reddy, who is the William T. LaPrade, LaPrade. All right, my dog and I vote LaPrade, professor of history and professor of cultural anthropology at Duke University. Dr. Reddy was one of the speakers on a panel at the recent Library of Congress conference all about romance fiction that was held in mid-February. His panel, along with other academics, was about the history and science of romance. But what Dr. Reddy talked about specifically was the origin of romantic love stories going back to the 12th century, which, if you read my write-up online, which I will link to, I thought was really cool. So when I was given his contact information, I begged, would you please do a podcast? And he was like, yeah, sure, it's spring break. Why not? So Dr. Reddy took time out of his spring break, thank you, dude, and talked about the history of romantic love stories what the difference between history and anthropology is, and about how the spirituality of love relationships and the sanctity of emotion is something that has been debated by the church and by ordinary people for hundreds and hundreds of years. So all of these people who devalue romance, there's like a history of them and there's a history of us who value romance. It's really cool. So I hope you find this as interesting as I did. This podcast is brought to you by Intermix, publisher of Echoes, Laura K. Curtis's fantastic new romantic suspense novel, available on March 17th. And this week's podcast transcript is brought to you by Forever, publisher of Once and Always, the sweet and sexy new novel by Elizabeth Hoyt, writing is Julia Harper, which is on sale now. Each episode gets a full transcript provided by Garlic Knitter, who is awesome. So if you prefer to read instead of listen, or you're thinking, I can't listen this week, I'd rather read, the transcript will be added to the podcast entry. Plus, we discuss a lot of books and 12th century poems and some of the books that Dr. Reddy has written, and I will link to all of those in the podcast entry, also known as the show notes. So do you wish to track these down on your own? Some of them are available in the public domain. Some of them are academic texts that you may have to borrow from a library. But either way, I hope you enjoy this week's podcast. And now, on with the interview. I was really interested in what you had to say at the Love Between the Covers conference at the Library of Congress. So I wanted to ask if you would first introduce yourself, talk about what you do um, when you're not on Skype with me. Happy (laughs) spring break, by the way. Thank you. And uh, talk a little bit about what you introduced at that conference, because your particular session was all about love in the context of history and sociology and anthropology. And you cover two of those. Am I right? Uh, yeah, approximately. <laughs> I teach history at Duke University, where I've been for a long time. And uh, I also have a secondary appointment in anthropology there. And I tend to do what I've I try to do kind of the anthropology of the past, you know, a work as an ethnographer looking at the past. Very common for historians to work that way these days. Uh, my field is French history. Up until about 10 years ago, I worked mostly on the 18th and 19th century. And then 10 years ago, I went out in search of the, trying to understand where romantic love came from. <clears throat> and I ended up working, uh, doing a book on the 12th century. Uh, the reason I did that is because I have, for about 20 years now, been working on the history of emotions. And uh, it's kind of a new field for historians. We didn't realize before that emotions change over time. And I think not just the way people talk about emotions or think about them, but also the way people experience 
their own responses to the world change over time. I became interested in romantic love because it seemed to me the the a way of getting at the relation between emotions and sexuality. To look at that history a little more closely struck me as something really exciting. And as soon as I started looking at it, I realized that a huge change had occurred in the 12th century, and that was really where the action was in, in, in the history of romantic love. So that's so, why I wrote a book about it. Well, I think that's a perfectly adequate response to finding something, write a book about it. I mean, that's, that's totally what you should do. I think that's in your professional mandate, actually. As a professor, you have you kind of have to. Sorry, dude, you got to write a book. Oh, so, it was rather quixotic of me to switch from the 18th to the 12th century. Oh, it's not, not that big of a jump, you know? No. It's just a couple of years. So I have two questions. One, yeah. how do you trace the history of emotions are you looking at what people are writing down? Are you looking at poetry? Are you looking at diaries or personal accounts? Because as I understand the difference between history and anthropology, history is, um, well, these people went here at this date, and at this time, these people were located here, and at that time, these people were located here, whereas anthropology is, okay, so all you dudes were in this place. How did that affect random farmer dude who's lived here for 50 years? Mm, yeah. Is that is that about right? So like history is the dates of when people did stuff and anthropology is how the individual nameless forgotten non-historical figure experienced that time. Oh well, we historians have been really trying to catch up and uh, study the forgotten people in the last uh, couple of uh, oh, in the last 50 years or so. Right, exactly. Um and uh, we are very interested in how um people's understanding of the world changes and how their everyday practice change practices change across time. And emotions are part of that. Yeah, yeah. So we tend to, a lot of people do now what's called cultural history, which is to study the history of um, what the anthropologists study in the present. Uh, everyday habits of mind, everyday practices, rituals, uh, uh, language, it includes literature and um, diaries and anything else that people might um, engage in. But for historians, we need we prefer to have some texts so we can some documents so we can understand more better what what people were were saying and thinking. <clears throat> so, what types of texts do you use to trace the history of emotions? Well, it's interesting that um, if you look at moral literature, conduct manuals, polite manuals of politeness, and so on, they have a lot to say about emotions. So there's a long history of, a long tradition of literature telling you how to feel. Then there are works of art and um, uh, of literature which uh, show us characters feeling things. Then there are diaries, there are um, journals, there are private letters, uh, account books sometimes can be useful, which tell us how private people actually express their emotions, at least in writing. In all these ways, we get information about uh, emotions that, we, you know, that allow us to piece together, you know, make good guesses about what people were actually feeling at a given time. So what brought you to the 12th century? Well, apparently everyone agrees um, that in the 12th century, the way in which love was written about in literature changed drastically. But there's a lot, there's a huge debate 
that's been going on for decades about why this happened. Before the 12th century, uh, romantic love is regarded as a weakness. This is true of the ancient Greeks and Romans and of the Christians who, who came along in their wake. Romantic love, if you see literary treatments of it from the ancient world, um, it's something that uh, interferes with the performance of one's duty. Um, and so, you know, example would be in the Iliad, uh, Paris, who has been given Helen by Aphrodite in um, uh, gratitude for his judging her as the most beautiful goddess. Uh, Paris is a really bad warrior and uh, when he's about to be defeated Aphrodite saves him from the battlefield and whisks him off to Troy where into Helen's bedchamber where he can do what he does better which is make love and uh, another wonderful text that that exemplifies this attitude is the um, life of Marcus Antonius by by Plutarch in which uh, Mark Antony as he's sometimes known uh, to English speakers falls in love with Cleopatra, and as soon as he does, he becomes uh, a bad general, timid, he runs from battle, and uh, loses the empire to uh, uh, Octavian. So <laughs> these oh, are just dear. examples of how being in love in the ancient world was regarded as something that would uh, result in poor behavior, uh, lack of moral fiber, so falling in love turned you into a giant wuss who ran from battle yeah, and exactly. completely decimated your army? Exactly. <laughs> but then starting in the 12th century, we suddenly have the image of the knight in shining armor who rescues his beloved, who becomes a better warrior because he is in love, rescues his beloved, saves the kingdom. Being in love becomes a, a, with, a with a refined lady becomes a, a something that's expected of knights by the in the code of chivalry that that reigned uh, over the um, behavior of the military elite for three or four centuries there and uh, since that time in literature romantic love is often treated uh, perhaps predominantly treated as something that inspires heroism something that can make us better I mean there's a wonderful um, wonderful hip-hop tune of uh, 2007 by Fabulous called Make Me Better. And it's all about how his woman makes him a better man. That is the theme. Uh, that is a theme that's central to treatments of romantic love in literature and the arts since the 12th century, but not before. So that was the question that why that happened, that was the question that, that really got me interested in the 12th century. What did you find? What, what do you see as the cause of elevating the idea of emotional love and heroism through being in love? I became convinced that the, the, uh, this, this shift in love literature reflected a shift in practices as well, and that both of these shifts were uh, kind of uh, a resistance to or rebellion against the teachings of the church. You know, this is, this is um, something a lot of people would dismiss this and say, well, the church had been teaching that sex was bad for 800 years at that point, which is true. Well, I've got a quote for you. If you want to hear what St. Jerome said about, uh, about sexuality. Bring it. 
He said, quote, the wise man loves his wife with judgment, not with affection. Let not the impulse of pleasure reign in him, nor the proclivity toward intercourse. Nothing is more foul than to love a wife as an adulteress, unquote. Dude! <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. You know, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are romance authors, and I think they're all yelling in unison right now. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Jerome went on to say, the generation of children is conceded in matrimony, but pleasures which are seized in the embraces of prostitutes are condemned in wives. Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> Poor wives. So he, he was making these pronouncements, and other theologians were agreeing, in the 4th century. Oh, but lordy. What, but what happened in the 12th century is that the church actually tried to enforce this view of sexual pleasure by, making, uh, by issuing a whole set of new rules, uh, which had the force of law. Yikes. About marriage. Um, and sexuality. They began to preach in the 12th century that any consent to sexual pleasure was sinful, period. It doesn't matter if you were married or not, to enjoy sex was sinful. The only debate was whether it was bad, really sinful, or just slightly sinful when you're married. Wow. And of course, there was only one position, and that was the position, of, the only position allowed was the one that would uh, promote reproduction because that was the only reason to to do it. You know, anyone who felt enthusiastic about a sexual partner, according to 12th century theologians, is just someone who is in the grip of a temptation, driven by an appetite of the body, an appetite for sexual pleasure. They think that's a wonderful person, but they're just fooling themselves. It's not; a, they're not really out to have a relationship. They're just out to get in bed whether they know it or not. This is where I see the, the new celebration of love coming in, because what you see in stories, love stories of the 12th century, you see figures who prove that they are not motivated by mere desire. They prove it by selfless acts of heroism, loyalty, self-denial. And then once they have proven it, they, in, a, in effect, render their relationship they demonstrate that their relationship is innocent and good, and then sex is okay. So the emotional establishment of a healthy and loving ardor for someone comes before the sexual intercourse. Yes, in in uh, in twelfth century uh, and generally in in medieval um, in medieval literature, um, if it's if it's you know what's called courtly love literature, that is uh, literature that celebrates romantic love. There's, there's, there's a lot of satire also that's written, uh, which, which doesn't, um, which really sides with the church. <laughs> <laughs> Just make fun of people's pretensions. But uh, in the literature that celebrates romantic love, the lovers generally, yeah, have to prove their devotion prior to getting into bed. So you have to earn it. Yes, exactly. All right, all the romance authors are cheering again, so we're good. <laughs> but the church in the 12th century took over marriage. They decided marriage was a sacrament. The priests could not marry. Up until then, priests were, well, you know, majority of priests were marrying. Uh, they weren't allowed to anymore. No divorce. They decreed, you know, that there would be no divorce. This was new. 
Uh, they established uh, rules uh, uh, against marrying your anyone who was related to you, however distantly, up to uh, I don't know what seven generations back. And oh, God. In, I know, and in effect, this ruled out marrying anyone you actually ever met because you know in the 12th century most people um, they didn't migrate very far. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't, or else you know, if they're if you're, you're members of a local aristocracy, your all the families have been intermarrying for generations, and so suddenly you're not allowed to do that anymore. Um, and it became very common in the 12th century for aristocrats who wanted a divorce, they weren't allowed to divorce anymore. They would do their genealogies carefully and discover they should not have been married in the first place. Oh. Guess what? We're 12 cousins once removed. Woohoo! Get out of my house. <laughs> um, and uh, <clears throat> so the, 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 the informal practices of divorce were continued. Um, <clears throat> and this posed a real problem. These new rules posed a real problem for aristocratic women. Why? Because up until that time, uh, it was very frequently, women would inherit all of the family's land and title if there were no male heirs. The woman would become the duchess of such and such a, a, a duchy or the, the countess of such and such a, a county or earldom and um, um, rule in her own name. Or she, if she married, her husband would become count or duke, whatever. Viscount, and so on. And so uh, then if there was a divorce, the woman took her title and lands with her to the next husband. So she oh. remained, as a result, a very powerful figure, even when married. But as soon as there's no divorce, she cannot, she cannot ever leave this husband. She has no leverage with him anymore. Wow. And she loses her ability to keep her stuff. Yeah, exactly. Even if she separates from him still legally married, yep. you can rule in her name. Oh, uh, Lord. So this posed a real problem for aristocratic women preserving the kinds of political power they had had before. And I think this, too, helped to feed a general um, underground sense of resistance to the new doctrines or the new rules about marriage. The typical lovers of the 12th century are a younger aristocratic male in love with a female lady who is his superior. And this love relationship is that, that is celebrated is adulterous. So one of them's cheating, and she is yeah. higher than him in status. Exactly. So this is like the, this is sort of the origin story of Super Mario, who has to go and go rescue a princess. Yeah, perfect. all of these patterns of someone who is working class going after some a female who is higher class. Sure, they yeah. they sort of have their origins in the 12th century. Absolutely, well, yeah. that's cool. The 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 Lancelot uh, Guinevere relationship right, is right. Um, is the kind of archetype of this. Lancelot is a loyal knight of King Arthur. He's in love with the queen. Uh, King Arthur being a good 12th century literary figure, you know, uh, is not jealous. It's, jealousy is condemned in the most uncertain terms in 12th century literature. King Where Arthur is not jealous. He doesn't pay much attention to what his queen does. Uh, she's kidnapped. Lancelot goes to save her. 
once he has saved her and also proven he will be a loyal, a loyal and submissive lover to her, she permits him to have a tryst with her. Whoa. Yeah. I see the Lancelot plot echoed in many, many contemporary love stories. I'm thinking of Casablanca or uh, Pretty Woman. These are all variations on the Lancelot story, to my eyes, now that I've studied all this stuff. <laughs> you see it everywhere? You can't unsee it? it. Yeah. I can't unsee it. It's everywhere. Uh, you know, something like the movie, what's it called? Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Here we have a guy who heroically tries to save his memories of his girlfriend from the onslaught of this neuroscientific memory-erasing machine. <laughs> Um, just barely manages to do so, end up giving it another try. That's a good example to me of uh, 12th century conception, that you prove your uh, love is true by some kind of heroic effort. And then that ensures that the relationship is a spiritual or holy one. So uh, you mentioned uh, a minute of, a few minutes ago of a sort of a underground that was beginning to coalesce in response to all of these yeah. rules and edicts from the church. So what came out of that underground? Not only just the, the Lancelot Guinevere uh, archetype, but what other things came out of the, the movement against what the church was doing? First of all, the promoters of this new vision of romantic love avoided writing treatises or essays arguing their case. Because if they did that, they would just get in trouble and be accused of heresy. So they just wrote literature. Just to write literature, in not in Latin, the official language of the church, but in local languages, was already, already a way of uh, indicating to the world that what you're saying is not to be taken seriously. We're just writing fiction. It's just some songs for after dinner. Uh, but in fact, when you read the literature... It's instructing you in how to love and uh, how to live your life. And <laughs> we, have, we have evidence that, in fact, young aristocratic men and women were told to read this seemingly non-serious stuff and expected to know this literature because it taught um, people how, what kind of behavior was appropriate at court, what kind of behavior was appropriate on the battlefield, and what kind of behavior was appropriate towards someone whom one loved. And one of the most important duties of the lover was to protect the reputation of the beloved. Keep it secret. Don't let any know, anyone know what's happening. Go to great lengths to... Uh, Demonstrate your discretion and your um, concern about the other person's honor, well-being, reputation, political status, and so on. So we, it was very hard to document whether there were real relationships like this. But we do have a few examples, and I think the fact that we have a few examples, you know, evidence of a few examples of romantic love relationships modeled on the literature, proves that there were many, many more. So what kind of examples do you have? One uh, example I really like involves a woman named Sybil of Jerusalem, who was the sister of the king of Jerusalem. This is a crusader state, 
And in uh, about 1180, her husband, the Count of Jaffa, died, and she returned to Jerusalem to live with her brother. And shortly thereafter, it appears that she got involved with some young knight, a man of lower status from France, named Guy de Lusignan. When her brother found out about this, he was going to have the guy killed, and he was very angry, but cooler heads prevailed, and he permitted them to get married. In 1187, Sybil's brother, the king, died, and she was the surviving heir uh, uh, to the, to the uh, throne. Uh, but the knights at court, the lords at court said, we aren't going to let you be queen because then this low-life knight would become king. So if you divorce him, we'll let you be queen. She said, okay, fine, I'll divorce him, make me queen. She divorced him, they made her queen. Then she said, oh yeah, the condition was I get to choose who will be my husband afterwards. As soon as she was crowned, she chose as her husband, Guy de Lusignan. The same guy they could force her to. <laughs> I like her. <laughs> and the story goes that uh, three years later, when uh, the Muslim prince Saladin retook Jerusalem, they had to get out, and Richard the Lionheart had helped them escape, brought them to Cyprus, and uh, made them king and queen of Cyprus. Nice. <laughs> Nice end to the story, <laughs> where their dynasty lasted into the 15th century or something like that. Well, they got a happy ending. So there's a real love story where she obviously engaged in heroic action to fool all of these uh, powerful courtiers uh, about her intentions and then to stay loyal to her beloved when she obviously didn't have to. She had no particular reason to stick with him if she didn't want to. These were these were the characteristic behaviors of a of true love as it was called that was the term that was that came in sin amour true love another example where we we think maybe something was going on was um, involved william marshall and his uh, his lord's wife uh, margaret of france william marshall was accused of having a an adulterous relationship with margaret by certain rumor mongers and William's lord, who was the heir to the throne of England, he was called the Young Henry because his father, Henry II, was king. Young Henry became very cold towards William Marshall when he heard these rumors. William Marshall demanded the right to have a trial by combat with his accusers. He said, he went even further, he said, you can cut off one of my fingers and then send three of them against me. And I will prove that I am innocent of these charges by killing them all. Um, <clears throat> and uh, uh, the young Henry said, no, I'm not going to do that. And William Marshall left his service. Later on, the following year, um, Margaret of France was visiting her brother, the King of France, and it seems that William Marshall made some arrangements and ended up spending some time in Paris at the same place. Ha, ha, ha. I know. Uh, <laughs> so the records that we have of this episode are all written in order to uh, defend William Marshall's reputation. They're written by supporters of William Marshall. So they would never 
admit, whether it was true or not, they would never admit that William Marshall was having a relationship with Margaret. All we know is that he was widely suspected of doing so. He was dismissed from the service of the heir to the throne. And he later tried to, and indeed successfully did, visit Margaret somewhere else. That's all we know. But it could have been. This is the, one of the problems, is that the evidence of a relationship and the evidence of a person's uh, denying yeah, well, let's, let's put it this way. The evidence of a relationship will often take the form of vigorous denial. No, 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 nothing to see here. No, no, everything's fine. Not at all. We're not. No, not at all. What do you mean she's in my bedroom? Of course not. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, funny how that pattern still exists. <laughs> we have a picture of you. But it's not true. I didn't do that. What are you talking about? I was not kissing her. Uh-uh. So at the Library of Congress, yeah, you had talk, also talked a little bit about how this these stories and poems and songs of courtly love mostly ignored the the church edicts about love and also pretended as if God had sanctified love and desire. Absolutely. How yeah. did they do that? Blatantly. Um... <laughs> so dude, <laughs> without, God totally says this is awesome. <laughs> There's, there's one wonderful um, song by a troubadour named uh, Giraud de Bournay. It's called a dawn song because it's about what lovers do when the dawn comes. The speaker, the voice singing the words, is that of a retainer or servant of a lord. And his lord has gone to visit his beloved in her bedroom during the night. But now the sun is rising. Um, and the, um, the servant is concerned that his Lord has not gotten out of the bedroom yet. Uh-oh. And in the song, praise that God will protect, uh, my Lord. I pray that God will protect my Lord who is visiting his beloved from any harm and wake him up and get him out of there. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse so me. The just... Lord hath decreed that it is time for the walk of shame. Get out of bed. <laughs> time to avoid it um but um uh this this happens over and over again just god will be invoked in this offhand way as if we all know that god uh, not only approves of lovers but is the if you like the the providential uh arranger of love relationships oh my and uh, there's never any you know, doctrinal, no theology. It's just casual uh, but frequent invocations of God's approval of such a holy thing as true love. How could it be otherwise is the implication of the, of the literature. <clears throat> were there any consequences for those who were writing or singing or sharing these stories from the church? Did the church ever try to say, hey, with, with, the, with the nookie songs, knock that off? You know, that's a really good question, and I've looked at that, and, and um, uh, I, I haven't been able to find any specific cases of punishments or penalties. It is true that um, in the 12th century, uh, the theologians of the church uh, consistently condemned as uh, uh, unholy all singing outside of church, all laughter, 
Um, therefore, all actors, singers, uh, dancers, jokesters, all of these people, then they were plenty of them at every uh, aristocrat's courts. There were jokers and singers and performers of various kinds, entertaining people. They're all considered to be um, beyond the pale by the church. Um, sinners condemned, doomed to go to hell. You know, laughter is considered to be questionable and suspicious, if not outright a sinful behavior. So uh, I am so screwed if I was in the 12th century. <laughs> I'm so dead. <laughs> I know it's just amazing how how strict these these doctrines were and people have asked me well why did the church go in this direction why was it so out of touch with lay society and um, I'm not sure out of touch is the right way to understand it I think church figures um, were enhancing their power by condemning things and got a lot of practical benefits from condemning things um, for no other reason because they could then be uh, begged for dispensations or exceptions or uh, I'm not sure that explains their motivation. One um, of the things that you wrote in, when I first emailed you about doing this podcast, and this has been so interesting, so thank you. One of the things that you wrote was that your outlook is anthropological and that yeah. you're convinced that if something is popular, it must be meaningful. So romance sure. is, fiction is very, very meaningful because it is important. And the denigration of the genre is also meaningful. And that both the popularity and the denigration of romance got started in the 12th century with the creation of this sort of underground deification of courtly love and the church trying to say, would you stop with these feelings? It's really kind of an inappropriate and you're going to go to hell. Yeah. When you look at, do you, I mean, I don't know how much you know about romance fiction after a full day of all of us packed into a small room at the Library of Congress talking about it. What, what, do you, what is your perspective on the popularity and the denigration of the romance genre in contemporary times? Do you have any thoughts or perspective on that? Well, I think there is, um, uh, let's put it this way, uh, there's a tendency on the part of modern day psychologists, psychotherapists, neuroscientists, to inherit the mantle of uh, church moralists and to regard um, sexual appetite or the sex drive as the source of all of our interests in persons who might be sexual partners. And therefore, to think that everything boils down to appetite. Appetite is, um, you know, is... Uh, when you're hungry for, for food, you'll take anything of the right variety. Appetite is impersonal in that sense. Right. Because of this tendency, I see romance in literature, in the arts, as continuing to uh, kind of engage in an unofficial, underground insistence that something else is going on in love relationships than just... Uh, sexual uh, gratification. Now, one of the reasons I think this is so important is that I've looked at other traditions and um, in no other, you go outside the West, no other tradition distinguishes between love and lust. It's very common for love relationships to be considered a spiritual in character. Um, and even, you know, um, if you go to uh, 
Hindu temples today, you can find enactments of love relationships between a god and a woman or a goddess and her uh, partner. These enactments are considered to be part of a sacred ritual. And there are many other traditions in which love relationships, some or many love relationships are considered to be spiritual in character. There's no tradition outside the West that treats uh, sexual desire as a bodily appetite that can fool us into thinking we want a specific person when all we want is just like another piece of uh, pie, if you follow me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That is is completely uh, a Western uh, notion. And uh, if, if it's wrong... That would explain why people uh, continue to um, display a kind of common sense resistance to this reductionist view of sexual involvements. Sexual involvements, I think the tendency is for, for them to take up for the whole person to get involved in a sexual relationship. That's the tendency for most of us, I think. Certainly for a lot of us, Enough of us so that we deserve to have a literature of our own. Right, that accurately reflects what we're actually doing. Exactly. So now I feel the emotional distance of literary fiction and my own personal regard for romance fiction, which I like much better than literary fiction as representing Mm. my own actual experience as a, Mm. you know, normal human being. Mm. Well, the thing, if you look historically, of, of course, um, initially, um, the rise of the novel is associated with uh, a kind of campaign for the marriage of love until the 17th century uh, and right into the 19th century. M- most marriages of people with any property were arranged by parents. Novels were considered to, all novels were considered to be dangerous, nasty things. Many, many novels um, promoted marriages of love and or critiqued the arranged marriage. It's only in the 20th century, as I understand it, maybe late 19th through the 20th century, that the novel with a capital N has begun to be considered great literature. And this distinction has arisen between um, fine literature and popular literature. That, that did not exist in the 18th, 17th, 18th century, there was no such line that you could draw. But either way, uh, I find a lot of the, um, you know, if you take the F. Scott Fitzgeralds, this is kind of depressing stuff. And it seems like the more respect that, that, that there's a relationship between the respect that is granted to the uh, realism and beauty of a work of literature and its pessimism about human nature. If you <laughs> When the great Gatsby goes down in flames or when um, uh, some other uh, hero or heroine ends in the, in the loony bin, we think this is really uh, the way things really are. This is really brave. Um, and, and I don't mean to denigrate these, these works of, of literature, but I'm just suggesting that there are exceptions like George Sand or, or Charles Dickens, but there are many, many uh, great novelists who write about disasters, write about delusion, uh, whether we're talking about Balzac or Dostoevsky or um, um, even D.H. Lawrence. We're talking often people who, um, who fail 
Yes, miserably. Fail miserably. Outside, in the rain, uphill, the both ways. Era, the unbearable lights of being. Right. And whereas you have genres like romance, which are consistently optimistic. Exactly. And devalued is, for their optimism. Exactly. It's suspect. All that yeah. happiness, man, is just, yeah. it's just not right. Can't be. That's my sense. My sense is that the that there's still a kind of uh, underground pro-love literature, which is uh, standing in, substituting for a failure on a part of our official and learned culture, if you like, to subscribe to romantic love, to support romantic love as something independently valuable, even though I don't see any exception amongst my academic friends. They all seem to want happy marriages, too. I don't know <laughs> why there's this, uh, why there's this, uh, this uh, mistrust of, of love that's so inveterate amongst the learned, the elite, the experts. I don't know. I have said many times, because I live right outside New York, and especially if you look at fashion, misery is very fashionable. Being unhappy yeah. and looking miserable is yeah. very, very chic. But happiness is something we all secretly want and don't openly talk about. Yeah. And that is part of my my standard defenses of the romance genre because I've been writing about them on a blog for 10 years. And so for the past five years, this has been my full-time job talking about romance, which is like mm. the greatest job ever. But I'm always asked, why do you like those? Why do you like those books? And I'm like, because they're happy. And that's automatically a limp noodle answer like well that does nothing that is that is not a good defense of romance even though i think it's a perfectly adequate defense of romance because i don't like to be miserable in my reading well i think my own uh, tastes in this regard are informed partly by this research but partly by uh having hit my 60s and i've seen a lot of real disasters and um I don't need to be reminded of them anymore. So what do you like to read when you're not reading 12th century songs and uh, 12th century poems? What genres of uh, writing do you like to read? Well, I what I like are the um, humorous whodunits. Um, Rex Stout. I like the, um, the Archie Goodwin figure. There's this wonderful um, Italian detective series, Sicilian detective named Montalbano. The guy Camilleri writes these Montalbano mysteries. They are so funny. They are so hilarious. I mean... Uh, All that happiness is very suspect, though. Well, I think that the other thing I like about murder mysteries is if they're whodunits, they always have a happy ending in that uh, you, know, you find out who did it. <laughs> I, I have sensed a lot of overlap in... Romance readers and mystery readers, because, you know, mysteries are about the restoration of order and yeah. romances are about the establishment of optimism and healthy emotional relationships. And both of those are related. There's a lot of romantic suspense. There's a lot of cozy romantic suspense. There's a lot of very violent romantic suspense. So yeah. those two things have a lot in common. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, since I started working on romantic love, I, I started reading around to, at random in, in romance literature and um, I tend to like the contemporary because mm -hmm. uh, when people are writing about history, for me, uh, uh, I start making a list of the questions I have about what they're doing or the mistakes they're making. <laughs> I can imagine yeah. that's an occupational hazard. <laughs> it just is not leisure. It doesn't feel like leisure. You know? One last question. 
And this is like the worst question to ask somebody who's written a book. Could you tell us a little bit about both of your books? Because many of our readers are also academics and historians and would, would be very curious to know more about what you've written. Can you give us the nickel tour of your books? Is that possible? Um, I've written, since I became interested in the history of emotions, I've written two books. One is called The Navigation of Feeling, a framework for the history of emotions. And in that book, I uh, argued that, that what we find in lots of periods of history is that people try to manage how they feel and are told to manage how they feel. And this shows up in research on foreign cultures as well. In Asia or the Pacific, people are taught to manage how they feel. And the way you manage how you feel is by repeating certain emotional expressions. One of the cases that was uh, first investigated uh, that I thought very interesting focused on a flight attendant school. Flight attendants were taught to have certain feelings. And if you couldn't have them, you were basically not graduated. (laughs) To be cheerful and calm and never uh, give in to um, resentment or anger, expressions of resentment or anger or fear. The way people were trained to do this is they were trained what to say, and they had to repeat it over and over again. And you have to say, you know, welcome to uh, flight so and such and such. That has to be a certain minimum amount of success in feeling what you're saying in order to hold that job. So I think people actually do, to some extent, not manage, but the way I put it in the the book is they navigate their feelings by attempting to express feelings they want to feel. And we can see this over time in history. What changes is the norms or ideals that people pursue in in these exercises. Most recent book called The Making of Romantic Love, Longing and Sexuality in Europe, South Asia, and Japan, 900 to 1200. It won a prize, I'm very happy to say. As hey, the best, congratulations. Best book in French history for 2012. That's the book, really, we've been talking about the whole time. I'm not sure I have to say too much about it, except further, except that it's 450 pages with a lot of footnotes. So if you Woo-hoo! don't agree with me, you got to go confront all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to write something that would be an easy read. People were dubious and suspicious of my explanations of what happened in the 12th century. And so I ended up writing a very serious argument, entry into the the grand debate over the origins of romantic love. And um, I really backed it up with every piece of evidence I could get my hands on. There are many readers of historical romance who are very attentive to the historical details of the books they're in and, and yeah. actually are probably like hopping up and down in their, in their chairs right now. Like, oh, I want to read all the footnotes. So you well, have an appreciative are, audience. There are a lot of love stories in that book. Is there a particular love story that you really enjoy teaching when you teach this subject matter at Duke? I do teach a course on the history of romantic love and... Um, one of the love stories that I really enjoy the most is um, the love story. It's a real love between Dorothy Osborne and William Temple. It occurred in the 17th century. And the way we know about it is that Dorothy sent to William a period of about two and a half years, long letters, and he kept them. And they've now been published. And they are brilliant 
brilliant letter. She wanted him to burn them as soon as, because they were trying to keep their love relationship secret. They're brilliant, chatty, fascinating letters about what novels they read and what kinds of marriages her friends are getting involved in. And um, here's how they met. This is a great story. They met when Dorothy and her father were going into exile because uh, her father had been on the side of Charles I when the parliamentary forces took over during the Puritan Rebellion. They had to go into exile. <clears throat> Dorothy's brother scribbled some kind of graffiti on this uh, building in, uh, in an island off the coast of England and was arrested because it was royalist graffiti. And Dorothy stepped forward and said, no, it was I who did it. And since she was a woman, a high-status woman, they let her brother free and didn't do anything. This act of bravery occurred while she was meeting this other traveler, William Temple, who was going to France as well. And they uh, apparently got to know each other in France and started exchanging their views about, guess what, romance literature. Uh -huh. They both were fans of a French author named Madeleine de Scudery, famous French author of the 17th century, who wrote these long, long romance adventures about knights and ladies and you know, carrying on the tradition of, of the 12th century. At some point, they fell in love. And by the time we see the first of these letters, they, have, they are secretly engaged. And she is trying to think up reasons to reject all of the suitors that her brother and her father bring. <laughs> to the house <laughs> to try to get her to marry. She refuses so many of them. She's frightened that they're going to put their foot down. Oh, my. Eventually, they managed to get their parents to agree, and they were married in 1654, had a 40-year marriage, many children. Her husband became a big uh, diplomat, ambassador to this country, ambassador to that country. It's a very happy ending. Nice. And I can't recommend those letters too highly. They are just witty and sparkling and full of genuine devotion to William Temple. That's just very inspiring. The Letters of Dorothy Osborne. You can download it off of um, Google Books now because there's a good 1927 edition that uh, came out from Oxford. Awesome. Thank <laughs> you again. And also thank you for your comments at the Library of Congress conference, I had no idea that courtly love and the edicts of the church were related to each other as far back as the 12th century. I'm used to yeah. people saying, oh, romance, why would you read that? It's really stupid. And they're all the same. And I didn't realize that the challenge to literature about emotions goes back so far in time. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing when you start looking at it. So now I get to tell people they're on the wrong side of history. Exactly. I love this plan. <laughs> and that is all for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview, and I want to thank Dr. Reddy for taking the time to talk to me. If you have questions, or you want to add something, or you want to recommend a book, or you want to be like, heck no, that history is all wrong, that would be interesting, you can email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. We love email, so if you send us some, it makes us very happy. This podcast has been brought to you by Intermix, publisher of Echoes, Laura K. Curtis's fantastic new romantic suspense novel, which is available on March 17th. 
And this week's podcast transcript is brought to you by Forever, publisher of Once and Always, the sweet and sexy new novel by Elizabeth Hoyt, writing as Julia Harper. That's available now wherever fine books are sold. Future podcasts will include Jane and me talking about the Dubois-ha. Now, if you're curious, that is how you say it, Dubois-ha. Yes, I am not allowed to name things anymore. That stands for the Dear Author Bitchery Writing Award for Hella Good Authors, and it's a March Madness-style tournament of romances. You can find out more at dubwaha.com. That's D-A-B-W-A-H-A.com. Again, I am not allowed to name things anymore, and I take that very personally. So Jane and I will be talking about the Dubois-ha, And if you have ideas of what you'd like us to do or talk about, you have a question, you want us to go hunt down an author and interview her or him, please email us. We are very open to your suggestions. The music that you are listening to at this very moment was provided by Sassy Outwater. That is Sassy herself playing the harp. This is called Rumba for Smart Bitches. I presume she made it up, which is even more excellent. And speaking of excellent... As you are hearing this, Sassy got married last weekend. So mazel tov and congratulations to Sassy and her husband. I hope they are enjoying a very warm and relaxing honeymoon. And in the meantime, on behalf of Sassy, Dr. Reddy, Jane, and myself, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a great weekend.